Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Elvis Costello burst onto the music scene in 1977 with the album My Aim Is True. Songs like Allison established him as a powerful new voice in rock. Allison, I know this world is killing you. His next album, This Year's Model, featured hits like Pump It Up, which continues to resound through stadiums and arenas across the country. From then on, he released album after album, decade after decade, becoming a force to be reckoned with in pop music. As a kid, his angular melodies and hyper-literate lyrics were in constant rotation in my household, and his sounds shaped my own musical sensibilities in a profound way. Now, Elvis has released his 32nd studio album, The Boy Named If, and it's a kaleidoscopic journey through so many of the sounds and styles that he's experimented with over the years. The album's title track showcases a slow burning tension. And on Paint the Red Rose Blue, Costello reveals one of his most moving ballads. There's also plenty of references to classic rock and roll here, as on The Death of Magic Thinking, which seems to channel the classic Bo Diddley beat. And the melody to birds, the death of magic thinking. If Costello's band, The Imposters, sounds like a well-seasoned unit on this track, that's because they've been playing together for decades with Steve Neve on organ, Davey Farragher on bass, and Pete Thomas on drums, powering through the entirety of this most recent release. I spoke with Elvis Costello about his wrong notes and gap-tooth attitude, Olivia Rodrigo and the anxiety of influence, why he turned down Adele, and how to confront your past to help you grow as an artist. Here's our conversation. Elvis Costello, welcome to Switched on Pop. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm really looking forward to discussing your new album, The Boy Named If. And let's begin at the beginning with the very first track, from the boy named If. This is Farewell Okay. Are you sure that we're in 2020? <laughs> we're in Hamburg. It's coming through the speaker here over the airwaves, and it yeah. sounds like an AM radio, which is really strange. 
So I like that, that it sounds like that, because obviously that kind of rhythm is a old-fashioned rhythm not many people use. But right, right. the other night I was, uh, I did a, uh, what I called a pirate radio show from the basement of a, of a, of a record shop in Smithdown Road, Liverpool, where my mother is from. And I was three and a half hours playing whatever I felt like, and nobody could stop me. You know, it wasn't like being on the BBC. Yeah. And, uh, and I did all kinds of crazy things where I played records at the wrong speed. You know, I was trying <laughs> to do everything myself. And the second to last track I played was Some Other Guy. Some other guy now has taken my love away from me. Some other guy now. Uh, which is a song from 1962. Uh, written by Jerry Lieber, uh, uh, Mike Stoller, and another gentleman, maybe Richie Barrett, the guy that recorded it. And it was immediately picked up by the groups in Liverpool. You know, obviously, I think a lot of people, before you had the internet, if you could get hold of a record nobody else had heard, you could pass it off as your own song. That was a good trick. <laughs> and they, they, so the, a great group from Liverpool called The Big Three did a killer version of it. Some other guy now. The Beatles had it in their repertoire, but never recorded it. So I always held that rhythm as kind of like the root of, it's like Liverpool rock and roll, because when you hear the Richie Barrett version, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like um, What I Say by Ray Charles. Tell your mama, tell your pa, I'm going to send you back to Arkansas. And then, yeah. so the beat groups, because they didn't have pianos for the most part, put that that kind of little chanky rhythm into it. So I thought well, it was time to um, uh, to put that back in a song. I've used it only a handful of times. And what better than to open a record with a song that says "Farewell, Okay," or right. "Farewell, Okay," you know, whichever way you want to say it. <laughs> You mentioned hearing a little bit of Hamburg listening back to this. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's a reference to the, the Beatles early yeah, Beatles years. Beatles and a few of the other groups went over. And when yeah. you think about it, probably how they got so good, because they played five sets a night, you know, and the drunken right. sailors and God knows what, you know. When you read about those times, we didn't get to do that kind of apprenticeship. I played around clubs in Liverpool in the early 70s with my pal Alan in a group and I then I went to London to try and get my you know get my songs recorded because I didn't really think I was going to be uh, a singer yeah not because I didn't think I could sing good but because of look at my face I'm not a pop star you know like <laughs> they were all golden haired kind of you know open shirt <laughs> the naval kind of rock stars in those days in tight satin right right or velvet flares were very popular in those days and I didn't look very good in any of that and uh you know, my mother worked in a biscuit factory, which didn't help. And so a song like this is sort of like what I would have been playing if I'd had the opportunity to play five sets a night. You would have wanted this rhythm for sure, you know. <laughs> I love that. This song starts in a rather indelible way. I'd love if we could just listen once again just to the first uh, assault of electric guitar that begins this track. Well, it's coming from a key you're not expecting for a kickoff. It's in C, and, and I'm playing this. You know, <laughs> I think Chuck Berry had this thing where, you know, Chuck Berry's supposed to have learned to play the guitar before he learned to tune it. Huh. Like, he tuned it his own way initially. Right. And I don't know how much that influenced the way he heard it. 
you listen to a lot of Chuck Berry's guitar, particularly when he plays up the neck a little bit, it's strictly speaking not in tune, but it's out of tune in a most fantastic way. Like a ring in a bell, because bells do not ring exactly consonant. Right, right. There's this thing going like this. And a lot of Chuck Berry's signatures are like him pulling the strings. And that's what makes him so impossible to copy because good guitar players can't do it. I think the closest Keith Richards, you know, but nobody Mm -hmm. plays like Chuck Berry did. Right. So from a musical point of view, without being a a learned, I never did any study. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I learned everything by ear. I didn't even learn to write music down till I was 40. So I didn't know the names of half the chords I was playing. I just knew they sounded good. Yeah. And when you get like a clanging chord like this, which as you say, strictly speaking, is augmented chord, I never thought about what chord it is. It's just this shape that makes a nice noise. And I still approach music that way. Even though I can write orchestrations, I've never really, I've deliberately never learned the guitar in a methodical way. So you can still come up to with surprises. By withholding knowledge, you can still surprise you can. yourself. Yeah. You know, Paul McCartney famously didn't want to learn to write down music because he thought it might inhibit the flow of melody. Mm. Well, heaven knows if you've written some of the tunes that he's written, you wouldn't want to mess with that, would you? <laughs> right. Those brash chords that kick off Farewell Okay yeah. point to a, a, a larger theme I sometimes hear in your work, this attraction to those to dissonance, to the wrong notes, to the out of tune. It's something I'd love to keep in our back pocket as we continue this conversation. But now I'd love to move to the treatment of lyrics in this song by skipping ahead to the bridge section of Farewell, Okay. This whole song takes place in a dance hall. Hmm. I tried to write a short story to accompany it, which kind of filled it out a little bit, but it's really all about the tumult and the chaos of a dance hall. When I listen to it, it represents, I think, one of the things I gravitate towards in, in your songs, which is that there's an incredible degree of specificity when we take this last quatrain. can't get the stain off my hands ever since from the fake marble pillar past a curtain of chintz a splatter of steps on a chalk floor pattern a trim of black lace on a hem of red satin see i'm combining two things that didn't happen at the same time right because when they used to do ballroom dancing where people had more space to move around they would put french chalk down on the on the on the wooden floor so the dancers feet slid around well they didn't do that when i was playing in dance halls what was on the floor was probably disgusting. It was probably, you know, I dread to think, you know, it was certainly spilt beer and sometimes worse, you know. Um, so I was, it's a slightly romantic fantasy, the short floor patterns. I was seeing in my mind, like literally like a footprint that's been made in a chalk floor pattern. Right, right. And then a trim of black lace and a hem of red satin. Well, I used to go with my father when I was seven years old at the dance hall on a Saturday afternoon when the ballroom dancers would be practicing and they'd be doing all these uh, pasodobles and uh, tangos and striking these poses, and they weren't dressed up in their real fine clothes, but somehow I always imagined them the way they appeared in pictures of ballroom dancers with the 
you know, satin and lace and sort of sexy looking kind of. Sure. You know, they, they all wore those very tightly fitted things and the guys would all be look like matadors. You know, there was like, for a young man, it was all very confusing. And I think it probably set me off down a track into kind of all sorts of stuff that I shouldn't have been thinking about. When I, was <laughs> young, you know. I, I live to tell this tale. Your interpretation is so different from mine because I, for whatever reason, immediately thought of a chalk outline that would. Uh, oh well, you've taken that be- whole, That's later in the. <laughs> I did write that line in a few other songs, but a chalk outline. Right, right, and it's it's a testament to how detailed the lyrics are, but also how obscure they are around the edges a little bit. Leave some room for the imagination, as you've done. You imagine something slightly different. Exactly. Leaving space for the imagination of the listener is all the more important. I'm increasingly trying to resist the temptation to have the last word. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you feel like your allergies are having a comeback tour and you want relief quickly, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing and itchy nose due to allergies. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside to get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies, and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Let's move to another song from sure. from this record. Let's listen to a bit of Magnificent Hurt. I'm wondering if there's another reference to that kind of golden age of of rock and roll here well i think if you play that kind of bass line you know uh that was the line i heard and davy just when you have davy farragher playing in your band he plays anything that's a groove thing with so much you know he played the simple pattern that other people would just be plotting on those notes (laughs) 
It's a very interesting thing that goes on with, between Pete and David. It's a push-pull, like a lot of great rhythm sections. There's like somebody's playing behind, somebody's playing, pushing slightly. Now, we never had that agreement in the early band. There were times when we just magically locked into a thing, which made the attractions, like some of those records sound very furious and, and certainly groovy in, a, in their own way. Well, you've 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 channeled that uh, that ferocity in your in your music to uh, an unerring success, I think. Over time, I've found sometimes it's right to go with the theatrical reader, and sometimes you just want to downplay like like a movie actor does, and don't do mm. that. Otherwise, everything gets like super like underlined. You know? Right. You have to take more than one approach. Sometimes you let some warmth resonance into your voice other times you tighten it up it depends on what the song is what's the story this particular song is the almost painful thrill of desire you want something so bad it hurts i mean that's not a mystery story you know it's uh i tried to say i did this storybook version of the record with my illustrations i thought what's going to represent magnificent hurt and i drew a couple on a roller coaster upside down with their hair all sticking up and all their money and their rings falling off their their fingers because in that moment of desire and you know yeah all allegiance all common sense gravity even comes into question <laughs> and i just wanted to try and make the music sound like that and then when we get to the chorus you know you go somewhere like more it's attitude in the verse and melody in the chorus. You know, there's a there's a sort of lift into mm. the chorus, and then we're then we're in a different world. Yeah, let's listen to that chorus and maybe pay particular attention to one of my favorite aspects of this song, which is the way you sing the title phrase. <laughs> it's not magnificent hurt. It's magnificent dot dot dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurt. Here it is. It's the way- where you maybe feel magnificent add the hurt later you know sometimes you don't notice it until later it's so magnificent you're not hurting it's such a surprising moment to hear the title phrase of the song in this way that you don't expect and and which plays off the the kind of antonymic quality of those two words magnificent hurt it's very well, you know uh, people people will sometimes say what do you mean by that Right. Like going right back to one of my, the first songs to kind of register with a wider audience of Allison. Allison, I know this world is killing you. Oh, Allison. You know, I know this world is killing you. Well, is this a murder ballad? It really <laughs> isn't anything to do with violence. That song, I never would have. I wrote it as a, it's a tragedy. Right. It's the recognition that the lack of faithfulness and the lack of the dream of, of, of love being constant would be, that's the world is everything. And you say the singer's part in that world. If you build a world together and, that, and then you pull that world apart, then that's what I meant by that. And beyond that, I don't want to be too specific because it takes away what other people might read in. But one thing it definitely isn't about is murder. There's one other part of the song that really tickles me, and that's the instrumental section. Yes. Which is another example of these angular, 
wrong, dissonant notes. Let's listen to that. That's a good example of, of putting your fingers anywhere and, and making it work. <laughs> How could you have a song called Magnificent Hurt and play a beautiful melodic solo? It wouldn't make sense. I, wouldn't, I don't often take solos. There's two on this record, which is actually two more than on almost every other mm. record I've made. Certainly, I haven't played a solo in 20 years, I don't think, on a record. So it, I don't really think of myself as an expressive guitar player. The solo that's on... What if I can't give you anything but love is probably the closest to an emotional solo that I've ever played on a record, that where I'm playing the feeling of the line before. This one is descriptive, right? It's descriptive right. music. That's like, okay, we're on the roller coaster upside down, all our rings are falling off our fingers, uh, the money's falling <laughs> out of our pockets, we're going to crash, we're all going to die. What's it sound like? Yeah. That's it, you know? And in it's that moment of madness, you get this little thing. There are moments that not for their technical proficiency, but for, for their appropriateness to the moment. And I think that is what makes the solo and Magnificent Hurt succeed. It's so... <laughs> I just had to transcribe it because it's so... It sounds like uh, Stravinsky or something. <laughs> well, thank you. And all of these things are just keeping your ears open to... And sometimes very simple forms can be can be that liberation you know to a whole new form the territorial nature of it can be very odd when people are very you know are, are sort of uh, get sort of like i've invented this thing that's never been imagined i said well, it depends on how much music you've listened to because to me i'm hearing it like i've heard it lots of times you know so so it don't be quite so proud about it because it was enough to write it and feel it you don't you don't need to have invented it talking about the cascading and circular nature of musical influence and, ex and exchange makes me want to pivot back to this year's model and maybe gives us an opportunity to talk about one of these kind of dilemmas that you were describing, these, oh, yeah. the, the anxiety of influence. When Olivia Rodrigo released her album Sour and the track Brutal in 2021... <laughs> It's brutal out of here. Many listeners commented on a perceived similarity between that song and Pump It Up from 1978's This Year's Model. And you responded with a sentiment very, very much in keeping with what you've just been telling me now you know i don't often get involved in dialogue online but this sort of took me by surprise this thing yeah. because i had heard um olivia rodrigo's first hit and i'd seen her perform on uh, some television show and she sounded and it sounded like well that's recognizably a real story that happened to somebody and what you know that's really good she had mm. a lot of presence and then I then I so I was perhaps curious to hear what was next, and what was next was the album. And then I started to see this 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 my name would suddenly start to appear. That was a bit unexpected, you know. Um, 
I mean, I honestly was approached at one point, I don't know whether she knew about it, but I, for instance, a long, long time ago, um, I was approached by a, uh, a music publisher to consider entering into collaboration with an artist that they had um, who was had made a record as a teenager and was just trying to make her, was writing her second record and they thought it would be a good idea if uh, I kind of collaborated on it. And I, and I, my honest response, and I think this was still one I would take, uh, was that I felt there was something wrong with me uh, in my, I don't know how old I would have been, maybe um, uh, late 50s, um, getting involved with trying to imagine what the reality was for a person who was 20. Mm. There's a difference between me imagining or me relating in The Boy Named If, what I remember, what I see, what I held in my heart, what I learned from the next experience in my life and in the life of all the people I love and people I've shared time with, but different, somebody I'd never even met, it would be hugely presumptuous. And that's how I didn't manage to write any of Adele's <laughs> second record. Now, of course, you know, I think if I had ever told my publisher that that was happening, they would have had me taken out and shot, you know. <laughs> but we didn't know that that was what was going to happen. And I've met Adele, and we've never even talked about it. She, right. I don't even think she knew they made that inquiry, I'm sure. It didn't come from her. It came from somebody who thought, how do we put these pieces together? So when I saw this letter from this young man who was indignant on my behalf, right. um, I wrote to him personally, and I said, look, this is fine with me, Billy. This is how rock and roll works. Um, you take the broken pieces of another thrill and make it a brand new toy. That's what I did. And honestly, like I mentioned, Chuck Berry is not a very obvious influence on, on my work, but there is a continuity going back to records from the 20s of quick fire delivery, whatever the rhythm. Too Much Monkey Business was a song I loved when I was, of all Chuck Berry's records, I loved Too Much Monkey Business. Salesman talking to me, trying to run me up a creek, say you can buy it, go on, try it, you can pay me next week. Ah, too much monkey business. And, I don't think it's it's inconceivable that Bob Dylan never had uh, not heard that song when he wrote "Sorry right. to Red in Homesick Blues." John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat badge I laid off. It's also inconceivable that I'd never heard "Subterranean in Homesick Blues" when I wrote "Pump It Up." You know, for me to take issue with Olivia Rodrigo uh, floating some lines over a rhythm which is shared in a whole bunch of songs before and since, mm. you know, would just be idiotic. <laughs> uh, what happened next was quite curious because um, people started to say, she's ripped off the rogue traders who were this fairly ghastly Australian <laughs> disco band yeah. who flat out stole Pump It Up from us. I don't mind saying, come down and try and sue me about that. <laughs> <laughs> They actually took our rhythm track, put it through a filter, and then mm. claimed to have replayed it. So they only got had to clear the composition, not the original recording. But it was so transparently our original track with a few other things laid on. Now, that was annoying. 
But that was a very long time ago. And I thought, that song will be forgotten and my song won't be. Mm. So what's the point of making them, giving them some publicity? So I had to treat it all with a sense of humor. Here's the thing, pump it up, what's, what's the riff? <laughs> or is it? What's the riff that, 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 you know, or is it the drum beat? Ah, You know, is right. it the drum beat, which is one of my many attempts to get Pete to play Going to a Go-Go on the drums. I've said, play like Going to a Go-Go. Of course, it's not even the same sort of feel at all, but that's why the toms are there, because he's rationalizing the fact that uh, now the bass line is, I think, from, uh, I think Bruce said it was from one of Elvis's late, re- late records, maybe even Burning Love. Mm. You know, that syncopated bass line, he's jumping yeah. around. So you've got Steve is stabbing. This is what I'm saying. We're not really playing like a conventional rhythm section. There's like three different rhythm patterns going mm. on that just happen to lock. It's, by the way, a first take. So <laughs> really? Was, wow. Time to, we played it. I wrote it three days before we did it. I wrote it on a fire escape in Newcastle. Played it the next night and the final night of our first theatre tour and it seemed to go well. And we were in the studio four days later and we cut it. And I know it was the first take because I broke a string on the, in the last few bars and you can hear the guitar go a little out of tune. You know, hearing your reflection now and, and reading that, that tweet you had in response yeah. to this, I think the, the, the reason people reacted very, uh, very powerfully to that because I think it was not what many people expected. Well, that, that, that makes me want to ask, there's a, a way that this, this music from your past keeps on surging into our culture today, whether it's in a reference on a Olivia Rodrigo record or whether it's the, the re-recording of this year's model with a, a crew of Spanish language music all-stars from Sebastian Yatra to Juanes to Raquel Sofia and Fuego. What, what, what do you think allows you to have such a, an open and welcoming relationship to, to material that is from such an earlier part of your career? Because I, I feel like many musicians have a complicated relationship with their early music. They, they, they want to they be associated with more than that. They want to, to move past that. They want to not be dragged down by that legacy. But you seem to embrace it. What, what allows you to do that? Well, I had, it's something I've come to, come to appreciate as time has gone on. I didn't have that attitude. You know, Linda Ronstadt recorded my song at Allison. Although it was never released as a single, it was on an album that sold, I think, four million copies. That's a lot of records, you know. It made the money that allowed us to put gas in the bus for the first few years before we got ourselves started. One of the reasons that I've been able to remain, to keep an open mind, is when I am, I guess, curious about what's happening next, rather than sticking with it. Because I grew up around show business as a kid, I watched my father's career. I'm very wary of the concept of beloved entertainer. Mm-hmm. You know, I even put that as a subtitle of one of my records. Yeah. The idea of somebody, well, you know this guy from that, when he sang that one back in 1935, and you loved him then and you loved him today. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I really got to be honest, if I, I said this thing the other day. If I fell under a bus while I was in London last week, 
the BBC would play Oliver's Army or She. They have, you know, only one of which I wrote. Now they would probably only play She, maybe Good Year for the Roses, neither of which I wrote. They don't know the other 590 songs or something I wrote, you know. <laughs> the way I feel about all of this is put the past down if it doesn't serve you. If it does serve you, use it. You put your weight on your back foot when you make a jump forward, don't you? Have you ever yeah. jumped off your both feet together? You never do that. Take a step back, leap. Yeah. You know, that is, if you do that in music, then you're going to take some stuff with you of value. Maybe you'll drop a few things out of your pocket, like the people on the Magnificent Hurt <laughs> roller coaster, and you won't miss them. You know, I, I honestly feel that way, I think, yeah. because you can always pick up the guitar again, and maybe when you pick it up, it's new. Mm. Elvis Costello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Love your piano playing on those things. I can't believe you. <laughs> you just casually played that solo. Though. That's, that's good to hear. So thank you. Well, thanks. Right. It's a fun, fun challenge for me. Bye-bye. Switch on Pop is produced by me, Nate Sloan, and my erstwhile partner, Charlie Harding. Our engineer is Brandon McFarland. Our editor is Jolie Myers. Abby Barr does community management. And Iris Gottlieb is our extraordinary illustrator. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Hannah Rosen. We're a production of Vulture and a proud member of the Vox Media Podcast Network. You can find more episodes of our show anywhere you get podcasts, and you can talk to us on Twitter and Instagram at SwitchedOnPop. Stay tuned because next Tuesday we are going to break down how Lin-Manuel Miranda's We Don't Talk About Bruno from the Encanto soundtrack has become an unexpected world-beating pop hit. And until then, all that remains for me to say is thanks for listening. One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know, it's a terrible question. What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's astaproallergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.